Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Oh, here we go, boys. that sound. This is a good one. Alright, welcome to another episode, episode 70 of Waterfall Wednesday on the Full Scale Outdoor Podcast. Holy crap, Nick's paying attention to the episode numbers. <laughs> just because the last one was 69 i know i know and i meant to make a, a very immature joke about it and then totally forgot because the conversation was just that good it was a good conversation also, last I week i just have a shitty memory but yeah I, I i said it was a good conversation last week i had no idea what we talked about <laughs> <laughs> oh actually my uh my nebraska trip mm-hmm yeah. Oh shit! I said where I went. You always go to Nebraska. I do every now, single now, trip. Now with your correcting of the correction, you really kind of gave it away. But I mean, that's pretty much. Well, you it. know why I go to Nebraska for every hunt I do is because they are the only state not included the, in the uh, interstate wildlife violator compact, so I can still buy hunting licenses there. <laughs> <laughs> is that a true statement? They're not. Uh, they were supposed. Uh, yes, that is true. But huh. they were supposed to get. They were supposed to. Uh, when I read that article, they were like, they will be getting into the compact in like twenty nineteen or twenty twenty or something like that, like recently. But they were like the one state that was left out of the interstate violator compact thing. Like, if you break the law in some state, that like, it's not like it used to be where you could just like go to another state yeah and if you lose your license animal. your license rights or whatever in one state you lose them in every state is basically what it is Ye- except nebraska except nebraska so <laughs> so you're telling me there's a chance <laughs> i'm telling you there's nebraska <laughs> um but no that um that uh i think that's over with now but it, let's just i just man i'm a pussyfoot about laws you know what i'm saying like when i am in an area and i sure hope to hunt here again in the future like i'm making sure not only that landowners are happy and that my trash is picked up but god dang do i comb through the regulations to make sure like 
Don't, is there something I overlooked and then the game warden's going to be like, gotcha, you're not hunting here for five years or, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh my, God. you know what I mean? Right, right, right. It, it's, it's almost like nerve wracking. Yeah, you don't want to, I mean, it, you'd wish that they would be going after, you know, gross breakers of the law, but sometimes you get that one particular guy that just, I woke up that day, he's like, I'm getting somebody today on something. You know, that's and, their job. You know, the the law's the law. The law's law. I'm not. I'm not saying like if if you didn't read the rule books thoroughly enough, and they got you on you know some little technicality kind of thing. I mean, it's still on you. However, you know, I am kind of a big picture person, and it's like, well, what is actually being gained by you know with as far as that could be a great warning ticket. Does it really need to be two hundred fifty dollar fine kind of a ticket? You know what I mean? Like. That's why I don't want to find out. Right. Well, I mean, that is the safest. <laughs> that what... is the safest version. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for recording today. I ended up cleaning all those birds from the trip yesterday. Oh. Yeah, they were all frozen, and uh, man, it takes a long time to thaw out a frozen goose in your basement. Yeah, that reminds me, I have fish to thaw out from this weekend. There are blocks of ice. Dude, geese especially late season geese when they have all their down it takes days and days and days for them just to thaw out enough for you to, their, to rip their skin they're all of them are entombed in a their own personal yeti cooler yeah, basically well, yeah it makes sense i mean it probably takes a long time for that that the heat to dissipate and actually cool down because of that it does. insulating factor of their fat and their feathers because that's what it's for but once it's cold it works the same like it's insulating it from the outside temperature, and if the outside temperature is warm and the inside temperature is cold, well. And you're you're science. also you you make a good point too when you say like it takes a long time for the heat to dissipate. So like when I am doing that sort of thing, like where I bring my birds home completely whole, like in whole bird condition, I do I never put them in a pile of any kind. Like they're always like splayed out. I always do breast up so the blood drains away from them, but they're splayed out like individually. And then, uh, like, back at the hotel, uh, there's a slab of concrete, and I just tag them, and then I lay them out, because that concrete will really suck the heat mm. out of them. L lay them on their backs on the concrete. They'll be frozen in the morning. Sure. Well, I know, and, I mean, it, to the cooler thing, one time out in North Dakota, we shot a pile of birds, and we're using the bird hitch, you know. We had a nice little assembly line, putting them away, one wing attached, labeling them, putting them back, putting them, you know, putting them in a cooler. Well... One of our buddies had did all that, and he packed, you know, wrote his name on it. That's his cooler. Put everything in there, packed it. But, like, we cleaned them right after the hunt pretty much. And so mm -hmm. the even though it was just basically the, the breast with a wing attached, they were still warm when we put them in there. So then when he shut that cooler with no ice in it or anything, by the time he got those home, they were spoiled. That sucks. Well we uh we were kicking around some ideas on what to talk about on this podcast, and I forwarded you this um oh this uh, I didn't even know if I really wanted to do this. It's an outdoor life. It's being shared all over Facebook by people who don't have as good as hunts as they used to have. Well, th this fits <laughs> this fits into a um something that I've been talking about. This was um not this not not as it pertains to duck hunting. Um, and it had more of a social media slant to it. It was on like meat eater that caused a shit storm. I got triggered by it. That was like my recap and rant. I went, I did, I ended up writing a blog post because of it. 
and uh oh yeah. really oh, yeah i was all i was all shades of triggered on that one um so and this 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 also kind of triggers me i don't know how much i like to talk about the stuff that triggers me you know because i'm very black and white but i i do have some we could we could look did you read it yeah i did i was actually rereading it again right before coming on i just wanted to get a refresher all right, well, the article, people don't know what the fuck we're talking about yet. The article in Outdoor Life is called, Is the Commercialization of Waterfowl Good for Duck Hunting? Question mark. Subtitle, Many Outfitters Create Crucial Habitat for Ducks and Geese, but the general commercialization of waterfowl is putting the squeeze on freelance hunters. God, is that just clickbait? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not Isn't entirely it? untrue. Not entirely, but... So many of the things that are said in ah, see, look at look at me, I'm just triggered already. I know, I know, it's great, but there, there's. I thought this was a good article though because it has many. It actually did. I thought at least tried to cover different perspectives. You know, the outfitters' perspective versus the freelancers' freelancers' perspective, public land perspective. So, I, th- I thought they did a pretty good job. Yeah, there's a couple things in here though where they just jump to conclusions like. They, in one part of this article, they're talking about Southern Illinois and how many geese they used to have and how there was goose clubs everywhere. And basically, in no small part, blamed no the, the disappearance of Canada geese in Southern Illinois on over-harvesting by outfitters. Yeah, I, that instantly brought up a point, too. It's like, well, isn't that, wouldn't that be counterintuitive to the person starting well, they- an outfitter? If I'm gonna, well, yeah. sh- I'm gonna chase and all of my game out. Like that's the game is how I make my money. Exactly, and that was 20 years ago. So why haven't they came back? Right, the outfitters <laughs> are probably gone now. Right, I mean the, out- they the outfitters back are gone. In. There was a there was a period where like 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted some used Bigfoots or some used full body Canada goose decoys, whoo, get yourself down to Southern Illinois. You could get them on pennies on the <laughs> that dollar. Was a hot spot. Because people had, like, I mean, there was, like, the Tim Grounds Goose Club down there, and there was tons. There was a crab, what was it, crab orchard or crab tree refuge down there? Dude, there's, like, a four refuges that held, like, a million geese between the four of them, all within, like, a 50-mile area down in their heyday. And everybody was running, like, these permanent spreads of, like, a thousand-plus Bigfoots. And when that all disappeared, talking about Bigfoots, a hundred bucks a dozen, man. Oof. That's cheap. But they should, they, I mean, they should have held on to them because obviously now that the outfitters are moved, the geese are going to move back in there, right? Well, that would be, that would, logic would dictate. Dude, they, it totally could happen. Um, when it comes to flyways, like, would you say in 20 years from now, some of the mallard and Canada goose and small Canada goose and snow goose flyways are going to shift somewhere? Yes. Me too. Where? Who knows? That's that. That's an un. That is an unknowable question. Yeah. And I, I mean, how many different variables there? I mean, we're only covering a, hunting a pressure billion? in this one, right? And then that's it does, like how many? Yeah. You know, it gets into you know later. You know, it talks about like habitat flats, and he's creating all this great habitat, and of course that's attracting birds, much to the chagrin of everybody south of him. Which you know, if they have a shitty hunt, it's like. Damn you, Vandemore! You're stopping. Yeah, all you're the birds. holding all the birds. You're stopping the migration. Um, I think everybody really needs to keep in mind that there are 12 million mallards on the continent. You know, there's 12 million. So if somebody has a hundred thousand held up on their private refuge, 
That's a lot of mallards. How about keep in but mind if, if it's you not are, if you are South Missouri, and and you go out and you have a bad hunt and you curse Tony Vandemore, do you also if you go out hunting south of Missouri and you limit out, do you then exclaim, "I can't believe we limited out in spite of there being habitat flats"? Like, can <laughs> right. you believe no. we limited out? That conversation no. never happens. No, you it's know, just the it works. You're happy. Placing blame. We're, we're amazing at hunting. We're awesome. We figured it out. All of a sudden, you have a shitty day. You don't see any birds. Fuck you, Tony Vandemore. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> that's the only time it comes up is when you have a shitty hunt. So overhunting also played, this is, I'm reading from the article, overhunting also played a role in the fall off of Illinois waterfowl hunting. Southern Illinois was once a mecca for Canada goose hunting. Towns like Cairo boomed with outfitters and hunters, but after decades of goose killing, the birds stopped coming. There are no notable populations of honkers in that part of the state anymore. Well, I do think they get like 20 or 30,000 on some of those refuges or 10, like, which yes, is not a million, but it's a huntable number of geese. Well, here in Rochester still has a lot of geese. I saw a bunch of um, flocks flying around today, but there, um, I mean, the outfitting business isn't like super booming down here like it was. And that had nothing to do with hunting pressure. That had to do with, they drained a lake. They took out a they, dam. They took, they, they took closed the power the, plant. They do a yeah, this and that. Plant, I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of different factors that go into why waterfall could possibly, I mean, this, this article, I mean, I get it. They're focused on one thing and they're, and they're writing about that subject, but when it comes to, Waterfall movements, migrations, feeding patterns, roosting patterns, just populations in general, there's so many different factors. And I'm not saying that hunting pressure doesn't play a, a, an amount or a part of that role. It would be absurd mm-hmm. to say that it doesn't. But what about changing crops, changing crop prices? Um, yep. Like, Even changing har- like uh, combines that harvest more grain and spill less. Right, yeah. Better, you know. Getting more yield out of your crop, leaving less waste. I grain. have, just like I have the, read uh, some studies that were like looking like hypothetically, like a hundred years in the future. Like, what if we really come up with combines that do not spill grain? Like, what's going to happen to bird populations? Well, what happens if we stop subsidizing corn and soybeans? Just not to get political here, but stop selling it overseas because we don't need to be subsidizing it anymore. We should be subsidizing crops where I don't know stuff we actually eat and can make good quality health food cheaper for all americans i don't know that seems like a good idea but no let's just keep pumping money into the corn and soybean market so what if that ever does change and right. now and less, it will it and, definitely will and so like less 25 farmers, years from now yeah and so now less farmers are are producing those kind of crops that are going to be tracting geese and ducks i don't think a big field of green beans is going to attract as many because you're they're harvesting them when they're ripe you know what i mean then just probably mm-hmm. not give me anyways green um that's just uh, another idea popped into my head. And I was saying, I freaking forgot what I was now. Dang it. You know, I have a conspiracy theory about this too. I like it. Because <laughs> let's go down the conspiracy <laughs> path. Because yes. it, it's very doom and gloom when it comes to the perspective of a freelance hunter, which I'm a big freelance hunter, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and it's even talking about how, like, getting on ground in Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska and the Dakotas. It ain't what it used to be. If you don't come with a wad of cash in your hand, you're not going to get on that land because outfitters are paying people to scout day and night. Dude, you know who wrote this article? Fucking outfitters. Because they're just, they're telling a wide audience of people. Don't even bother. Don't even try. 
Dude, that's what I tell people when I when they oh you hunt this area too you hunt that area like yeah I sure do I'm like oh well, how is it oh dude it's it's tough I throw hay bales I fucking throw hay bales for like five guys in the summer everything is basically leased and not just for ducks and geese man it's leased for deer it's leased for turkeys I mean it is it's mind boggling dude it's so close to the Twin Cities everybody's got you know this is just right, me yeah, off the top whatever. of my head right, right. discouraging you from being anywhere near me. So your your conspiracy theory involves your own admitted conspiratorial actions. Who doesn't say that? You know, <laughs> like if if I went to a part of let's just say Nebraska, Nebraska. and hunted, <laughs> let's just like just say I went there and somebody's like, oh, you hunt that area near Valentine, Nebraska, near the Niobrara um, Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, that's where I hunt. Like, is it easy to get on land? Like, no, no, it's absolutely not easy. Yeah. There is no public land. <laughs> yeah, there's like none. There's none. There's no public land for first of all, and then <laughs> then you got all these doctors coming from all the big cities. Hell, they come from California to lease it all up for deer hunting. Like, oh, like yeah, don't take a trip there. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep going to keep going to North Dakota every year. Shoot your shit ducks and stay away from my paradise, <laughs> Nebraska. <laughs> Just giving away all your secrets now. Now everybody knows you're full of shit. <laughs> sorry nebraska Man, sorry a... nebraska residents but you're getting flooded now well i'm so you know what i don't feel bad for anybody who lives in such a waterfowl paradise as nebraska that you get a boohoo a couple non-residents showing up to hunt there you guys have plenty to share once your dad listens to this episode he's gonna tell his two buddies and those three are going down there just, i have a confession i uh I don't even think my dad knows I have a podcast. <laughs> just go with it, dude. It's a joke. It's just an inside oh, geez, joke. I mean, He's the one guy listening right now. God, work with yeah, me. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know who's listening anymore. <laughs> Ever since I didn't go to college, it's been just disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's get back on topic here. Um, what else down the road oh that's what i just remembered what i want the point i was going to make not only crop fields but how about as solar becomes more and more like they're clearing tons of land and they're they're buying up ag land because it's nice big flat flat plots of land without buildings they don't have to knock down and they're converting these things into solar parks you think that's gonna attract many canada geese i don't think so. no and there's and wind farms too and i mean there are straight up fuckloads of studies about how wind farms affect bird migration and it is negative like they do avoid wind farms and uh, a lot of the telemetry stuff like the um that they're doing on they're doing a telemetry study on like eiders out in uh the atlantic ocean and it's a bunch of different birds they're just trying to figure out what their migrations route routes are to try to avoid them now you know but like everything they've put up until this point is just out there diverting migration paths and murdering birds. Well, you know, they def- I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you had to commute through a um, American Ninja course every time, like you would take an alternate course. Like, <laughs> dude, I in my if I were to just say my knee jerk reaction to that, like, does a wind farm divert migration of ducks and geese? I would straight up say no. I don't think it does. Um, because they can just fly higher. And I mean, there's nothing, like they feed in my front yard, like there's nothing that's gonna prevent them from getting the food that they wanna get. But I am wrong. Like that knee, that knee jerk reaction of mine is uh, not borne out by the studies. Like it's actually exact opposite of that. Hmm. 
And actually, somebody even, like, speaking of, like, diverting migrations, somebody uh, messaged me on Snapchat over the summer, and they're like, hey, with all this, it was late summer, like, getting close to hunting season, like, do you think all these wildfires in Canada and all the smoke is going to divert goose migrations through Canada coming out of the Arctic and stuff? And I was like, no, like, I don't think so, like... I guess not. They're probably just going to go to their traditional migration stopover sites and start eating in the smoke. Who cares, right? But there were two studies that came out on the, and they were using the GPS transmitters on the Thule white fronts, the, uh, out in, uh, Oregon. And they were studying, uh, how the smoke affected the Thule white fronts, uh, migration paths. They totally avoided the smoke and huh. they said it fucked them up too. They had to like fly way out of their way to get around the smoke and then get back to the area they wanted to get into. But it wow. actually like shit like that, I would think doesn't affect their migrations and it does. So I don't know. I'm only right like 99% yeah, of the time. <laughs> only 99. <laughs> the, I mean, the point of these little deviations uh, from this article is just to point out that, that this is somewhat of a very narrow minded view of why your hunting might suck. I mean, there's a lot of other elements that are going into it that aren't taken into account in this particular article, which that would probably have to be like a multi-part, you know, a piece, an outdoor life to get all that different information here. But again, it's a long article and it's kind of triggering. So I did a lot of skimming of it. I definitely didn't read it all the way through. Oh, I had, I had a, I read it all verbatim. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, it's just. It starts to get to be like, it sounds so whiny and complainy to me, but... Well, one of the things, you, like, if you go through the article and you read the whole thing, what they don't offer up is any solutions, or at least, like, I don't know that there are solutions. You know, when someone starts bitching about shit like this, it's like, okay, what is the fix? Because generally, you're, you're going to have your, like, you know, MAGA hat wearing, pickup truck driving. I'm making a broad generalization here about Hunter's at least in the in the Midwest here, um, are going to mm -hmm. be primarily red state voters versus blue state voters. I know there's some don't get don't send hate mail. I know there are people on both sides of the spectrum, but I'm talking again. Very broad generalization here. They would probably not also be in for some sort of like legislation or controlling what you can and cannot do. But if you boil all this stuff down, what you then it sounds like you want to do is you want to limit free market. You want to cap how many outfitters there can be because what else, what else could you possibly do to stop this mechanism from happening other than saying you can only have so many outfitters or outfitters can only lease X amount of land or can only do this or can only do that. You're saying you want more regulation so that you can hunt the way you want. And generally yeah. speaking, more regulation is not, you know, they're not pro more regulation in general that fall on that right. political spectrum is my point. Yeah, you're correct. Um, but I do think uh, regulation does have a... It, it has a good role in waterfowl guiding. There, there's a, several states that do not have any regulation. Those are the states that I've guided in. Because I've never, I've never had a guide license. Mm -hmm. So Minnesota doesn't require a guide license. Oklahoma doesn't require a guide license. South Dakota doesn't require a guide license. And... Um, you see states that do require guide licenses, they have less competition. And what I've heard from lodge owners is that when you are 
like uh, Larry down in Oklahoma. Great guy, great business guy. And what he's struggled with is um, the fly-by-night guys who want to come in and be a guide. So they set up shop. They have no license, you know, totally legal. They're doing everything right. And uh, they just drive up the price of a lease. So all of a sudden, you know, instead of paying X amount, you're playing, paying more. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, those guys have kids, get real jobs and fade out. And, you know, just the, like the motel cattle runners, you know, they never buy a lodge. They never buy into it being their life from then on. Um, they just do it for a few years. But the landowners still expect that price. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're not going to, like, rewind their prices. No, that's just that's a, a bitching perspective from the like from the lodge owner's perspective, mm-hmm. you could say. Right. Um, it's hard for me to bitch about guiding in unlicensed states when that's all I've ever done in my entire life. Right. (laughs) Well, and I try to, like, when people start bitching about, um, outfitters leasing up land, you know, and I I try to temper it with, like, you, you're, unless you're dead set against outfitting being illegal, I don't know what you want them to do because if they have clients booked in advance, which it's the only way to operate a legit business, you can't just hope that the, you get phone calls Friday night and Phil Fields Saturday morning. So you're booking mm-hmm. clients months out in advance, if not a year in advance for like return customers or whatever. So you, again, you can't leave with the chance that you're driving around scouting Thursday and Friday. You got three fields worth of hunters booked for Saturday morning, and you got to go knock on doors and hope that, some freelancer didn't beat you to the punch like no like you have to have a guarantee so you're going to lease this land you can't leave it up to chance that's not to say that if you your scouters find a hot field that they go knock on a door they might you know do that too but you're gonna have some go-to spots you just have to i mean to to run a business like you just have to i mean there's no way around it and you got to just be smart too like if there's a lot of outfitters in your area one air one like bright spot is going to be public land because outfitters normally are barred from using public domain for their private interest. Mm-hmm. So in most states and most areas, I can't speak for all of them, I guess, but it is illegal to guide on public land unless you get a special use permit. So like, you know, plan on hunting a lot of weekdays. Like public land is crowded two days a week. It real there's really not pressure on a lot of public land for five days a week. Right. And, um, and, it, and what else? Is- and does it does it really matter? I mean, this this is kind of goes in the face of like what this article is saying. Like, tons of pressure can change the migration or move this stuff. How many people go to Swan Lake or Pelican Lake, and like it's it's famous for being an absolute shit show at the launch, and somebody setting up fifty yards from you, and this that and the other thing. But every year, all I see are limits <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, people I have mean, good hosts they, there. They and, have really and they good have bad experiences. There. Yeah, I mean, and you know, okay. Here's an here's one thing I will say: I don't like to see from waterfall guides, and that is a lot of advertisements. Um, if a guy is posting pile after pile after pile after pile after pile, your advert that that advertisement for an outfitter is ninety nine percent advertising for freelancers to come into your area and start to hunt your area as an outfitter you know like i can see that but as like an insider little hot tip when you when you see outfitters advertising just means they don't have clients booked for the upcoming weekend 
Doesn't, and they're using old pictures. And, well, and maybe they're not. Maybe they're using fresh pictures, and maybe they're fucking pounding birds where they're at. But they're letting, they're, they're not booked up. And I, I think it's, honestly, I just have a different perspective. If I were to start an outfitting business, I don't know if I, I would probably have a website, like a .com, but I don't think I would have an Instagram or a Facebook page for that outfitting business. And I would put in the legwork of getting my clients as in I would go to shows like mm-hmm. the like us find out where there's a uh, a sportsman's show in Dallas, Texas. I'd really focus on the being a guy from the north. I would really focus on the south bringing in southern clients. And it's not hard to just google search, you know, the uh, five ri- five uh, richest metropolitan areas in the south. And, all right, these five cities have the most money. All right. Well, where the, when other sportsmen shows? Go set up a booth. Go shake some hands and go put those names down on your on your booking list. Mm-hmm. But I think there's outfitters that just think social media will do all the work for them. But there again, that's going to be an outfitter that in two years is going to be like, why are there all these new outfitters around me? And there's these freelancers everywhere. <laughs> well, because you are advertising your sure. an an advertisement on social media. For your outfitting business is an advertisement for your competition primarily. Like large majority. You like three percent of people who see that are going, maybe I'll book with them. And ninety-seven percent of people are thinking, maybe I'll go hunt there. It's maybe I should set up my own outfitter there. Yeah, it's a pretty common business model. I mean, I think it's gonna be pretty hard in this day and age to not do have some sort of social media presence. But I understand what you're saying. And it might just be like I totally I totally wouldn't, dude. Well, I you totally would. Might not be successful. How about that? <laughs> I would be successful, dude. <laughs> you know, dude. It's just. It's like you gotta have. You gotta have those bookings. It, it's. I think Graham told me once, like, you don't got a guide service if you don't have asses in blinds. Right. So. Yeah. No, the shows are definitely important too, and I would say definitely way more important because people are going there for that express purpose and they can meet you and right you're from uh, minnesota like yeah that's crazy what are you doing here trying to get people to start their waterfall season Mm -hmm. three months early Mm -hmm. you like to shoot ducks and geese well i sure do well you want to wait till thanksgiving or you want to come up and have a fucking cool adventure with me well that sounds fun what are your prices this is what they are it's not that hard people want fun Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you're selling fun you're not wrong and that's another thing about waterfall hunting, too, is, like, if you're out there making piles and advertising it, and, uh, I mean, I can't blame anybody for wanting to go to, you know, Valentine, Nebraska, because they heard it on the Waterfall Wednesday podcast, because whoever is listening to this also enjoys the same fun I do. Right. So, I can't be mad at anybody for wanting to, you know, plan that Nebraska trip for next year. Well, and it's like, so getting back to on this article, you know, as you go through it, you know, they talk about ways that you can, you know, money to manage waterfall, waterfall habitat, not just like places like Habitat Flats, but like the state of Minnesota. Like, okay, well, maybe we need to earmark more money to have better habitat and set up these, you know, refuges that you can hunt. It's like, all right, well, now again, what's the solution? You have to ask yourself, is what you want like what you did? And this is a good I think this is a good question to ask you or get your perspective on it because you've done this style hunting. Do you want a pit draw system? 
in this state? Would you want the state to go and bulldoze and make this like waterfall mecca that's basically a refuge, but they have certain areas that you can hunt and they put in pits and then you have to just get on a list or it's a lottery. Are you, would you be in favor of something like that? Oh, 100%. Or um, setting up um, pro- public access to private land programs that all surrounding states have a very robust system. Like, man, it's hard, you, it's hard to find a state as bad as Minnesota for public access on private land. Sure. Like when, when I say I'm hunting public land, it's not hard. I just and go I hunt to Texas. A, I I hunt a lot of public land. It's private land that's been opened right. to public access. Like if look up, just Google this Nebraska Public Access Atlas. Punch that in. It'll bring you into a GIS map, and you can look at all the land that their dollars go to. Um, Iowa has a program. Hell, even North Dakota. Has a, has a, it's called Plots, Public Land Open to Sportsmen, mm-hmm. Plots Land. And that's in a state that has um, implied consent. Right. They, st- they, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they still have a, and if you look up the Plots Land in North Dakota, there's a shitload of it. And Wisconsin has a volunteer public access. It's called VPA HIP Land. Um, Iowa has a program. I can't, that name uh, eludes me right now. Out west, you get to states like Idaho and Wyoming. They've got something called Access Yes. Um, California has a system. Washington has another really great system for it. Um, New York has these uh, these private fields. They've got, ah, fuck. When we, were, when we were looking at that New York regulations on that one episode, I found a bunch of uh, private access on public land that's ran through like a headquarters and you go and draw a spot, you know, and you can get out hunting. Hmm. Well, I mean, Minnesota has, there are some walking areas, but it probably just needs yep. to be greatly expanded. It needs to be greatly expanded and the, the scope needs to be greatly expanded because it's, it's very, very difficult to find uh, agricultural field. Almost all of that is going to be grassland for pheasant hunters. Mm-hmm. It, it none of it is waterfowl focused, and almost none of they're the closest one to the Twin Cities is uh, there's like one of them down over by Hutchinson. No, I and would the, be the, I would be in favor of that that model for sure, much more than I would like the pits and then a permit system where only like a few people get to hunt you know, a weekend and you just, it's left to luck. Um, and I think to your point too, I would be more in favor of this system too, because it fluctuates and it moves around, you sure. know, like, um, lack of parl when you used to be able to draw your fence post, like that was some cool pass shooting days, you know, like, mm-hmm. but that's, it's, it was set up to be permanent. And just like we've been talking about, these flyways are not permanent. Right. And these, these, uh, the bird abundances you see in an area today, are not permanent. And, and you know, uh, I think this article that we're talking about really hits home for somebody, and there's a lot of these people, and I'm one of them, who lived in an area or hunted in an area that went through a flyway beginning to use that area. So you're seeing bird abundance go up and up and up. This was out by my mom's cabin. Like, 15 years ago, oh my God, you could get permission on anything and the flyway was just building in that area for like the first time ever you know so nobody was hunting out there and it was like just free range and now the hunters follow the flyways so now it is much 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 more difficult hell everything's leased up out there bro 
Mm. <laughs> Everything, you know, even the deer hunters and the turkey hunters, mm-hmm. they've got stuff leased too, you know? It's very hard to get access help by my mom's cabin. <laughs> well, if you think people be I don't recommend off, anybody go. Pissed off trying to get out in the field and they find out it was leased. Think of how pissed off you'd be if, if the money or if the state started sinking money into some of these popular lakes and putting in pits and having a draw system. Like all of a sudden you show up to go hunt, you know, one of, you're one of the... 8,000 people that go to Swan Lake on open air, and all of a sudden you find out, no, there's only going to be 12 groups out there. Did you get on the list? They'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, they would be pissed off if that happened. So this this draw I did in Arizona um, at the Cibola National Wildlife Refuge, I think what was cool about that is it's an area that otherwise was not accessible to hunting. They carved it out sure. and then put in a draw system, so that's pretty cool. Right. And I think that's what they did in, uh, in Lac Aparle as well. That's areas otherwise unable to be hunted so but if you're talking about taking a public area closing it down and then starting a draw system now you're talking about some politics and some pissed off people for sure but if you're talking about taking about like a little refuge ground and being like you know what we're gonna open this manage it and do a draw that's a new opportunity yeah like the minnesota river valley right something like that if they put in i'd be in yeah i'd be in for that you know like we're going to invest in some money and put in some pits and have a draw system so we can hunt parts of this. Like, yeah, okay, cool. I think it's important too to just realize that your hunting situation is going to, if you find a good hunting situation, it's going to be getting worse. I always, I've used the reference, like every time you find something awesome in waterfowl hunting, you have found a, uh, you found a wilting flower. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not on its way up. If you found it and fired a gun in that area, it's on its way down. You're such a pessimist. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's beautiful when you find it, but right. you, it, but the hunt never stops. Like just because mallards in your area might not be the way they used to, there could be like, for whatever reason, like a fuckload of wood ducks that show up in this area. You know, like the flyways are always shifting around and changing and you got to stay on your toes and stay on your game and stay on researching this stuff. That's kind of what makes it so much fun. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when you discover a new opportunity for yourself and you're like, fuck man, this is great. And there's also a little tear you got to shed like, as great as this is, I know it's not going to last. That's just a part of probably all hunting, you know, but it, well, it's, it's a part of the game. It's part of the love of it. I think it's smart to acknowledge that because I think the vast majority of hunters, you know, and you, you still hear it to this day. It's like, there just isn't ducks like there used to be. This is where I used to hunt with my granddaddy back, you know, and well, yeah, shit changes. I mean, just like we talked earlier, dams are getting removed left and right. That's kind of the new thing now. So you're getting less and less reservoirs. They're shutting these power plants down. That's changing. Crops are constantly changing. Um, there's just, you know, solar parks, wind farms. I mean, so many different factors are going into it that it would be really odd for your hunting place to stay static the for 100 years. Like, right. why? Awesome that would be hunt. the weird thing if it just they always yeah. went there no matter what like that would be the aberration right that that would be the aberration like it, what area besides canada but even canada like that vast prairies up there they go through like wet and dry cycles mm-hmm. up there because it's and it's it's actually an arid climate like it's prairie pothole region but sometimes they don't get a lot of snow in some parts up there so like it can be dry in some areas one year to the next 
Well, and then we have to, we have to bring up the dirt, the real dirty phrase of climate change. I mean, whether you believe it's real or not, or believe it's man-made or not, that, that we don't need to get into that argument. But climate does change. I mean, it, and that's not it, only going to change. Does. I mean, that's not only going to change like the north-south latitudes that birds have to go into to um, be in their preferred climate zone, but that's also going to change crop dynamics right. and yeah, f- and sure. food and f- and food distribution, and not just crops, but aquatic invertebrates, and you know, like uh, well, just, the even the har- pondweed they even harvest dates. So I mean, it, it's conceivable you forecast out a hundred years from now that you might just need totally different season structures just to match harvest maybe or maybe they start migrating earlier or later depending on if it's getting warmer or colder or whatever's going on like it's not going right. to stay this way for forever and as as much as people bitch about the dnr there are a lot i mean there are hundreds of people employed by the fish and wildlife service and the, your state dnrs that are trying to keep their finger on the pulse as much as we are Right. And to do and to make the best decisions for the hunters, their constituents in that state. And I, I do think uh, America has the envy of the world when it comes to waterfowl research. Like no other country has a hundredth of the amount of data and scientists that we do working on this. I'm, I am I am optimistic that we, we have a bright future waterfowl hunting. Even if more people begin waterfowl hunting, even if hunter numbers go up, I think which so they too. haven't been. I think so, too. I mean, it, it it's just going to be different. I think that's what people need to prepare themselves. And, it, and look forward to it. Something look forward I got to in, it being different. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's a, a new experience every time. You get to see a different part of the, your state that you live in, or you go visit a different part of the country, or whatever it is. I mean, glass half full glass empty i mean it can be it can be what you want it to be or you make it to be if you just want to be all crabby and pissed off that it ain't the way it was well then be pissed off and crabby so i guess a good question to close on is uh let's say in 30 years what hunting is wildly different what would you want to do in the future that's wildly different than what you do now i could go first okay Because I've thought about this, like out of all the hunting experiences I've had, like what would I want to maybe do in the future is I kind of want like when I'm an old man to have like one of those tank pit duck boats, one of the ones with the stoves and the heaters. And I've never owned a nice boat. I've never like taken it through like the Snake River or, uh, you know, even going up and doing some Great Lakes hunting in it. Just have a badass boat and uh and do a lot of hunting around the world in that that would be pretty cool do you have anything um i mean there's so many different kinds of hunting i'd like to do i mean i've never done the layout boat hunting i would like to try that but is that something i would like to do all of the time i mean maybe in the future i really liked it i mean with that new uh zone they got in wisconsin it's not that far of a drive to green bay well, and one of the things in this article, it talks about that in some of these refuges or in these bigger lakes that the, because of pressure, whether well, this is true or not, it just talks about it, the mallards will roost out in the middle of this big, large lake and then feed mm-hmm. at night. Well, if I can lay out hunt in that lake, that'll stop that. <laughs> 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 so I don't know. I, I, I guess I, don't, I haven't really thought long and hard about it. I don't really have a good answer for that one. Like, if things really changed. Because I guess it would have to be, how do they change, I guess? What is the change? would? I mean, I, I love waterfall hunting. So 
what's what I'm going to do is what I'm going to have to do to still do it. Is yeah, and would it's, be the answer. I'm going to do the same. But it's when you say it's what I have to do, that almost implies like some disappointment. But it's also it's a great new opportunity to keep learning, keep becoming a more diverse and uh, good hunter and. I mean, like, every time you find that new opportunity, man, that is a feeling of euphoria that can't really be matched when you're like, yes, this is awesome. Yeah, I don't mean it in a negative. I don't mean a negative term at all. I mean, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to roll with the punches and and stay ahead, stay ahead of the trends. You know, we've talked about trends in this podcast multiple times, you know, whether it's blinds or decoy strategies or calling strategies or whatever it might be. And it's like, if you're one that is, isn't afraid to think outside the box or not do the same thing year in and year out, you're probably going to end up being one of the more successful hunters year in and year out because you're changing as the birds change. You're letting them tell you what they want to do, and then you're exploiting that to get success, more birds in your bag. So if, if that means you have to hunt a floody weed, weeded creek or whatever instead of a cornfield, well, then if nobody else is doing that, guess what else is the benefit of that? nobody else is doing it you're not going to have any you're not going to have any competition for your knock on a door like hey you mind if i hunt your hay field down there and you know where you don't have it cut (laughs) go ahead ain't nothing down there meanwhile it's just shit stacked full of puddle ducks you know so one thing that will always protect you too is learning how to hunt traffic sure like if if people client outfitters do not have the luxury of telling their clients there was no birds here yesterday and we're going to smash them. Right. They have to hunt the fields that birds are in because uh, their clients won't stand for it otherwise. Like mm-hmm. what? A traffic hunt with clients? Amazing. If you shoot something, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, you know, but it, like if you don't, you're going to be blasted as the biggest idiot. Dude, we set up in this grass field. There was no, wasn't even any geese. You know, and it could have just been bad weather that screwed you over that day. But like, as a pri- as a freelancer, hunting traffic and hunting, pu- learning how to effectively hunt public land will always be a safeguard against whatever outfitters spring up in your area. Let's make some sponsors up. Oh well, let's do it. Uh, well, I got we one. don't wait. We don't have a made up one. I mean, we kind of have a real well, one. We ha- we have boss ammunition still boss ammunition still holding on which unless you go hunting somewhere you're probably going to hang on to those few shells for a little bit i really should <laughs> gonna... send them an email <laughs> like let's try to get a legit sponsorship from them uh, i mean and, their logo is on the on the on the cover art anyway <laughs> um real geese decoys that's a sponsor this week oh okay you know why they're not getting enough love real geese are some fucking awesome silhouettes I love their color. I love their size. I like their steak. It's not bad, that wooden steak. Mm -hmm. It's it's durable. It doesn't bend and contort into a bunch of weird shapes that makes it harder to stick in the ground. It's just hard to stick in the ground no matter what, kind (laughs) of. Hey, it's another tool in the box. If you know it's going to be 20 below zero, don't bring those. The first decoys I ever bought were real geese decoys. Um, I bought them at Game Fair. I mowed a bunch of lawns when I was 14, and I bought two dozen of the Pro Series 1s. They're like the first year's Pro Series came out, and I still hunt over those things. You know what you could do? You could just invent a ring base that accepts the wood stake. Oh, you can run those stakes through um, real geese decoys if you're a wire stake guy. Yeah, that would work. 
What about, I like real geese what about decoys. Goose Tech? The Goose Tech app is an official sponsor declared by me right now. I don't talk <laughs> about it enough. You really like, don't. We do all these, you really don't. I know. I need to start pushing these products that I actually believe in and I worked really, really hard on. If you're trying to get better at running traffic and killing honkers, check out the Goose Tech app. Um, uh, everybody who's asking me about lessons these days, I used to charge 100 bucks to do lessons. The app is 20 bucks. Buy the app. And then we'll and then get with me after that. So just instead of a hundred dollars for a lesson, just buy a twenty dollar app. Go through that. You got a good basis for how I teach. And then reach out to me and say, hey, I want to work on this with you. And that is something I'm super interested in. I haven't been charging people for these little 10, 15 minute lessons we do after they get the app. You know? Oh, what a guy. Well, I'm trying to keep learning. Sure. And uh, a cost barrier prevents people from calling me and talking to me about calling and me learning more about how to teach it. True story. So once you, ha- once you have the app, reach out to me and be like, I'm trying to work on something. We'll take 10, 15 minutes and we'll crush it out. Dude, I had one guy who uh, was not breaking his call over properly and he had the app. He called me up and within one day we got him doing the ambulance, full ambulance, getting it fast. Dude, it just warms my heart when that shit happens. And like, <laughs> yes, dude. That makes you a good we teacher. Talk- that's when I was talking on the phone with the guy uh, after I shot my limit on that public field out in Nebraska by Niobrara by Valentine. <laughs> 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 and also the uh, um, the Nick Johnson Signature Series Goose Call by Pacific Calls. Oh, yeah. That's um, I tune every single one of those. I vapor polish the guts. I hand polish every single read. It's like a 20-step process. I really, really work hard on trying to make sure everything is tuned like fucking awesome so people can have great success plus you know if you have something like that if anything ever goes wrong with it nick jay's got your back just reach out to nick jay and he's gonna make sure that your goose call with his name on it sounds good no matter what you know just go to their website for that yeah that's available on pacificcustomcalls.com check out all of pacific calls um they're just killing the game right now i'm so happy to be partnered up with them cool and uh what do you got what do you got um, what do I got for, uh, sponsors this week? Um, Hot Hands. Hot Hands. I'm going to counter you with the G-Tech, though. <laughs> <laughs> when your batteries die, though, when your G-Tech batteries die, if that happens, you were negligent, number one, because they last a long time. But number two, Hot Hands. Hot Hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap this one up and, uh. We'll see everybody next week. All right. Talk to you later, dude. Bye. Bye. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.